Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Welcome to the Elkshade Podcast with me, Dan the Fitness Man, your host, Welcome to season five. Here we go. This podcast is brought to you by discipline, delayed gratification, and being accountable to yourself. This podcast is about finding the high road, working hard every day, creating the best possible version of yourself. Our values are faith, family, fitness, finances, elk hunting, and career. Our guiding principles are authenticity, transparency, and out hustling the competition. Our podcast is brought to you by Buck Knives, Onyx Hunt, Vortex Optics, Wilderness Athlete, Black Rifle Coffee Company, Crispy USA, Matthews Archery, Kufaru International, and BlackOvis.com. Friends, welcome to the Oakshade Podcast today, sitting down with an actual living bow hunting legend. Paul Navarre out of Colorado. He is a guy who has worked very closely with Colorado Bow Hunters Association for years. He's been elk hunting for decades. He's very successful bow hunter, living legend, and it's just an undeniably inspiring podcast today. This is the guy I want to be when I grow up. Just a fun, sincere conversation about not only bow hunting conservation, how elk hunting has changed and how it hasn't and it's just a fun listen i hope you enjoy it i appreciate you guys support without further ado this is paul and you're listening to the elk shape podcast thanks for taking time for this i've been looking forward to it thank you you're a legend but we'll uh, we'll get into that okay i don't have an agenda today i just want to talk elk hunt and if that's cool with you let's talk elk hunt and i'm gonna i'm gonna re uh name your podcast for this series right now uh, not only it's elk shape dash, it's life shape. Feel that. And I go by that. So uh, we can discuss that, how a guy that's just turned 82 can still do this stuff. 82 years young. So yeah, you are basically what I want to be when I grow up. 
I, w- I want to elk hunt till I die. About 10 years ago, I, I, I wrote down a life plan. And I no, actually, it was when I turned 60. And I said, Paul's going to live beyond 100 and hunt elk until he's, a, until he's to 100. And I signed it. So I'm working that plan. So planning is important. And then working the plan and making headway and keep moving forward is very important. So what, what does that look like for you, Paul? Like day to day, what do you have to do in order to stay in life shape, stay in elk shape? It started a long time ago, Dan. It started back in 1940 before we even had a television until 52. It started, gee, when the Second World War was starting. Uh, we played outside and we got dirty and our parents said, be home by dinner. That's all they, they cared about. We could hang and hang around in trees. We could build tree huts out of discarded lumber. The best thing that happened to me is in 1949, my parents moved up to Lake Erie, the South Shore of Lake Erie. And that was wonderful. Our house was about 100 yards from the lake. There was a pier that I could swim off of and fish. Uh, later, there was ducks flying around. And about a mile away, there was this long sand beach marsh area that uh, hunters would lease for duck hunting and the kids could walk the beaches and find all sorts of neat things and going out and exploring. And we learned not only life skills, but we learned outdoor skills. I joined Cub Scouts back in the day. I was a Boy Scout, learned some skills there. But just living in the rural area on Lake Erie at the age of nine until I got out of high school in 1959, I had a wonderful life along the lake swimming and hunting and staying in shape, played football in high school, happened to be the co-captain, but that was nice, played baseball, ran track. That's what so many of my friends did. Everybody had a bicycle because nobody had a car to drive to school and we'd hitchhike to school two miles away. We worked on the farms in the summer, detasseling corn off a hybrid corn. We picked raspberries, strawberries, walked behind a tractor, filling up a bushel basket of potatoes for 25 cents. And we'd got home. And at the end of the week, we'd have $30, $40. And our parents would put half of that in the piggy bank. And we could go and spend it on a new baseball mitt or maybe a Daisy Ryder BB gun. <laughs> you know? And everybody had a slingshot. And so, you know, that's what we did as kids. We waited around in the marshes, uh, clubbing carp and we did some trapping when I got older and trapped muskrats and, uh, and raccoons for 75 cents to a buck and a quarter of pelt back then. And we just learned outdoor skills. And the outdoors has always meant a lot to me. And right now, I'm as excited to be in the outdoors and hunting as I would even more so back then, because I think I appreciate it more. Yeah. So I've always been an outdoor guy. And I've always been a nature guy. And I've always understood the natural resources. Yeah. So it's always been important to me. Yeah. The fact that you just said that you appreciate it now even more because you, you know what it is. That's powerful. I guess I got to figure out when did you hear your first elk bugle? In 1988, I was a sales rep for a large company in in Ohio. And I had the wherewithal to be able to afford to come to Colorado back then. The licenses for a non-resident for $250. And so I could take off 10 days or two weeks during that sales period of time and come out. And so I did. Back then, there were no podcasts. There was no YouTube. There was no 
iPhones. There was no Onyx Maps. So you had to rely on, gee, a phone, a dial-up phone, and a topographic map. And so I started calling around. The first thing I did, though, I, I said, I, I, I've kind of white-tailed deer in Ohio and Michigan back in the day, but I didn't know anything about elk. And right here in my bookshelf behind me, I've got two or three books about what's an elk. What do they do? How big are they? How do they feed? What do they feed on? And what are they doing when you're going to be hunting them? Before the rut starts, after the rut starts, when they're just going to bed to feed, summer range, what are they doing? So I learned a lot about elk before I even saw one. And then Larry Jones, D. Jones from Oregon. I happened to meet Larry at the sportsman show in Denver years back, but even before that, I got his tapes. He used to carry a tape recorder out in the field with him. And you could hear the bull bugling. You could hear him answering it. He would be telling you what was going on. Then you could hear his recurve bow go off. Then you could hear the elk crashing away. I played that over and over and over so many times using his elk calls in the, in the car while I was traveling around on my sales calls. I even wore the tape out, called Larry up, and he sent me another one for free. And then later, the second time I ever came to Colorado elk hunt, I actually killed a bull and sent him a picture of that. But when was the first time I ever heard an elk? It almost happened like the first turkey I ever killed and called in in North Carolina. I said, that can't be an elk. That's gotta be another hunter. And just like the turkey, it turned out to be a tom turkey. Luckily I was ready for him. He came over the ridge and I shot him. I was in the flat top wilderness area. I had talked to the forest ranger and also a guy that goes out and inspects trees and, and does inventory of the trees so they can go in and do some cutting, cutting. I also talked to the divisional wildlife guy in the region, and they gave me some ideas of where to go. But when I talked to the timber cruiser for the Forest Service, he says, Paul, I was just up there last week. I'll show you on your, Jeep, on your uh, topographic map exactly where I saw elk. I went there. I camped uh, in my I had a van at the time I could sleep in, I had a little tent and I'd hiked into the timber and I called and I heard an elk bugle back and I couldn't believe my eyes. That year I missed two elk because I didn't understand. Well, one, I shot an arrow off of a, a limb before it got to the elk and the other shot a couple of days later was downhill at a steep angle. And I didn't know much about angle shooting at the time and I missed him. But the next year I came back and actually killed an elk. So that's 14 elk later. This last year, I killed one with my recurve bow. So it's a it's a uh, a lovely tune to hear in the timber. But some years you don't hear very much of that. And I've changed my elk tactics over the years from being more aggressive to being very passive, and and I'm doing much better that way. But uh, so yeah, it's it's a thrill to to hear an elk beagle not only during the day but at night. I camp out. I'm a backpack camper and I'll stay up in the timber for 10 days at a time. And you can hear so many things going on. You can hear elk sometimes hitting their antlers together, maybe doing a bugle, get a feel, feel a really good feeling about what's going on when nobody is around like other humans. Oh, I want to unpack a couple of things you've said so far. And for listeners, this is pure, like, I'm going to have a smile on my face while I'm talking with Paul here, because I don't sit down with 82-year-old men that are still getting after it elk hunting. This is a treat for me. 
So Paul, got to go back pre-digital era. You either got magazines, went to sportsman shows, or dug in on books. Now, I want to know the name of at least one of those books on your shelf because I don't think elk behavior changes much. It doesn't go out of style. So what's a good read for listeners to go back and still understand elk biology and behavior? BlackOvis.com is where I buy all my gear. I use the discount code ELKSHAPE. It takes 10% off. Very few exclusions apply. Shipping is fast and free. They're already great prices. And when it comes to getting your gear in your hands early 2022, it's never been more important. Number one, supply chain issues. Number two, inflation. Don't wait. Your prices could go up on everything. And number three, get the gear in your hand. Test it and vet it before the season. Black Ovis offers clothing, footwear, optics, gear, archery, camping, several different brands, lots of SKUs. We've partnered with them because because we believe in them. Use a discount code ELKSHAPE, save 10%. TheElkCollective.com is a website that I started with John Gabriel several years ago. We wanted to create a digital, virtual, educational learning platform where you could watch videos and learn how to elk hunt. Learn specific tactics from several different subject matter experts who hunt in different states. If you're an elk hunter, you've signed up for being a student for life. So join The Elk Collective and get going. Use the discount code ELKSHAPE podcast, all one word, and save 20% on your annual membership. Numa Outdoors, I partnered with them over over a year ago, I switched from Sika Gear to Numa Gear. This brand believed in elk shape, and I believed in them. I tested their gear before partnering with them, and I was really impressed. Numa has an entire line dedicated to Out West, and here's your lineup if you're in the market. Get yourself the Base Haven base layers, the Pursuit pant with the knee pad that is removable. These are breathable, athletic, good four-way stretch pants that'll help you maneuver and be athletic in the mountains. For a top layer, I recommend a Renegade short sleeve, long sleeve, or quarter zip with a mid-layer Alpha Vert jacket or vest and always have a palisade puffy in your pack to wait out storms use the discount code elkshape 20 to save 20 percent off your first purchase from numa outdoors faru international this is the best backpack on the market in my opinion first things first get yourself the duplex light frame then you can attach any bag that you want i have several bags in my arsenal but my top three are going to be the hoodlum the hoodlum is i'm going to use for anywhere from a five to seven day hunt i can pack out an elk with it easily and i can organize my gear the next pack of choice is going to be the 22 mag a little bit smaller than the hoodlum this is more of like a two or three day effort perfect for the elk hunt perfect for the elk mountains perfect for getting around and keeping your gear organized last but not least is the new hellbender this is the striker xl on steroids this is a pack that i'm going to be using exclusively in 2022 elk hunts all three bags fit on my duplex light frame and with kifaro you can customize your setup with accessories i generally run on my right hip the water bottle pocket gen 2 for my nalgene a small or medium belt pouch and generally a small medium large pocket somewhere on the bag you can also backfill with the sherman pocket or guide lid and inside my bag i organize all my gear with kufaro ultralight pullouts when it comes to sizing your frame the belt the straps they have great customer service just pick up the phone give them a shout tell them elk shape sent you talk to their customer service representative get the exact size you need buy once cry once and enjoy the best hunting backpack on the market well, one book that I carried with me to my camps over the years was Dwight Shoe's book. And it was a nice little paperback book you could carry with you and you can underline it. You could read it in camp and you can reread it. So I read that a lot. And Dwight pretty well pinpointed exactly how to go about elk hunting and what to look for and when to look for it and what are the elk doing at the time, whether you're going to ambush one or whether you're going to stalk one or whether you're going to try to call one in at certain times of year. So that's, that was a, it's probably not in print anymore. And I'd have to turn around and look at my bookcase, but there's a bright, I think anybody that can go on you, uh, YouTube and put in anything they want on, on some type of search engine 
and find all sorts of great books about elk behavior and what are elk. And, and actually, you could just punch in, what do elk eat? How much do they weigh? Uh, where's the distribution of them? Which state has more elk? What are they doing in the summertime? How long is the gestation period of the cow elk? When are the fawns born? You know, what are the bulls doing that time? When do they do the you know, antlers? So all that's important. And, and I, I know a lot of that. And it just makes the hunt more enjoyable because I know a lot about elk. And actually, any species that I've ever hunted, I have investigate. I've been very fortunate to have killed the Colorado big eight species. We have 10 here. The only two I'm lacking is a desert big orange sheep and the Charvis moose. And I just got notified by the divisional wildlife that I did not draw my desert bighorn sheep, but there's 25,000 guys applying for them. And I don't expect to draw, but it's, it'd be a goal. It'd be lovely to do that. So there's a lot of information out there today that wasn't available years ago. There's not only reading materials, but you can go on YouTube and find videos of guys can explain about how to elk hunt and how about elk call and what are the elk doing when you're hunting them. It's very important to know a lot of that. And, and about any species, whether it's bighorn sheep that I've killed or mountain goats or cow, a coos deer that's a beautiful buck right here on the wall or goats. I've got white tails here. There's a turkey right here. Pronghorn, what are they doing at the time you're hunting them? And how to respond to that it can make you a better hunter if you know what the animal is doing and what the animal is all about. I couldn't agree more. Um, one thing you said back in 88, so I was seven years old and I still have this happen to this day. So it kind of made me like laugh a little and make me feel better. But in 1988, you heard a bugle and you said, I'm not sure if that's a real bull that might be a hunter. That That actually blew my mind a little bit. I didn't think there'd be as nearly like that many vocalizers out there as well as hunting pressure. Obviously nowadays, everybody's got a bugle tube and sounds pretty good. What do you think about how elk calling like that in 88, like tell me about the hunting pressure back then. Well, here in Colorado, here's what I know. I know there's 54,000 bow hunters who hunt elk in Colorado last year. This is the first time ever there's more non-residents and resident bow hunters for hunting elk. It's like, 51, 49%. Prior to that, it was always more residents. But Colorado has become a very popular place. We've got 285,000 elk, and many of those elk areas are over the counter to hunt. So people can go buy a tag, come to Colorado, and go hunt. That may be changing in three years. I can't estimate what's going to happen, but I can speculate a little bit what could happen. So when I came to Colorado in 88 and 89, there were less than 200,000 elk. And there were, I believe, around 26,000 bow hunters at the time in 1988. So it's doubled in the last 20 some years, 30 years. Yeah. I brought to Colorado my turkey calls, my diaphragm turkey calls that I used in Ohio to come here to Colorado to elk hunt. I don't know if I was just being cheap, but I knew that the, the, uh, the reeds blew out really quick. And I learned how to bugle a little bit. That was, that was how I started. But yeah, everybody that I see has a bugle on their pack or on their, on their body. I do think that many callers are over, it's overdone. It's sometime a first and last resort because maybe an outer state hunter only has a week to hunt. Maybe he only has five days and he's under pressure to try to make something happen. 
I'm very fortunate now that I've been retired for 20 years that I can hunt the whole 30 day season. I can hunt nine days and then go home for five days and come back. So yeah, I, I, uh, I've seen there's more calling out there and more different types of calls uh, from mouth calls to, uh, to the, the bugles. And there's some excellent videos out there. I think the main thing, and, and you've had uh, Paul Elknut on your podcast. I met him years ago when he came to the Colorado Bowhunters uh, Jamboree and gave a seminar and he gives seminars and he's on bowsite.com. Paul pops up once in a while and he gets some excellent advice and he has some excellent videos on not only how to call, but how to respond to the elk in the right elk language. What are they saying to you and what do you need to say back to them to lure that elk in? So, so yeah, there's, there's a lot of, uh, ways to hunt elk and, and being aggressive and trying to call one is one of those. But I've learned over the last seven years that I don't do that at all anymore. And I've been more successful. Let's move into tactics changing because I'm in a similar situation where um, I've left behind kind of that thicker, steeper North Idaho elk country. Had a lot of success there back in the days where I could get two elk tags a year and I'd, I'd kill two bulls a year every year for over a decade. Mm-hmm. I don't hunt there anymore. There's too many wolves and those tactics don't work for me, especially with more hunting pressure. The only time you're really going to catch me bugling is trying to locate elk. And a lot of those buglings that I'm doing is actually at night. I'm trying to just locate elk, but my preference is to ambush at a pinch point that I've observed and studied or hunt them in their bedroom, sneaking in stalking because they're not moving anymore or maybe I get lucky and there's a rut fest or there's a vocalization going on where I can take advantage and slip in. That to me is my version of elk hunting now. How did you become to your tactics and what exactly are they? I was pretty well uh, similar to many elk hunters when they start out. I thought chasing them and bugling one in, calling at any time of the day along the trails and didn't matter what time of season, first day or the last day really didn't understand what elk were doing at the time that uh, it took some testosterone and some lack of light through the elk's eyes to get the rut moving. So I didn't understand all that until later, but, uh, but I did pretty well. I actually, the first elk I ever killed was in the flat top wilderness area. And it was the last day of the season. And I told my, my wife that I wasn't going to, I'd be back shortly. And I waited across the Creek a couple hundred yards away and went up the hillside and I, was, I backed through some pine boughs. And as I turned around, here's a four point, four point bull and three cows right up ahead of me going up the hill. And they just thought I was another elk. And I took a shot and, and hit shot, shot him in the femoral artery in the back leg. And he bled like a stuffed pig and he was down in a hundred yards. That was how I got my first elk. But I had some other opportunities chasing them up the mountain into their bedding areas and, and never had a chance because the wind was always switching. So I did pretty well. I probably killed eight or nine elk over the years, uh, some cow calling, some ambushing, some in funnel areas. But the last few years, one of my, one of the, the spots I really hunt where I used to own a business on Lake Granby was back in the, uh, one of the big basins nearby, but it got so popular. And this, and last year it burned out. It had big, tremendous forest fires, but I haven't hunted there seven years. I promised myself I just wouldn't go back because it became too popular and it kept pushing the elk farther west into some drainages that I didn't want to try to get an elk out of. I did some research. 
where can I go that there's no ATVs? Where can I go that there's no motorcycles or no motorized vehicles whatsoever that I have to actually hike in or take a horse in? And I don't have a horse, so I'm going to have to hike. Uh, I found some in, the, in the world, one of the wilderness areas in Colorado. And I did some research and I had three or four alternatives in the area and I kept scratching different ones off because it, I kept coming back to the wilderness area and no motorized vehicles. That was so important to me. And I talked to the local biologist and the local re regional game manager and he, and he gave me some ideas about that area. And so during early, early August, I hiked up in there and found some pretty decent sign. Actually, I found two wallows with a half a mile apart. I ran into some friends up there that had, that knew me from bowsite.com and, and uh, said, Paul, you're right in the middle of this. And I went, oh, okay. Because I started seeing sign and I actually missed a bull over a wallow that night. I was off the ground and it was a 40-yard shot and I hit a limb right before it got there and it went away. So I realized that this wet wallow, which was part headwaters of a stream, had a lot of potential. So I hunted off the ground there a couple of times and eventually killed a cow and a bull there early on, the first two times I went hunted there. And then I've killed uh, three bulls in a row now, one there out of a tree stand, and then two others half a mile away in another wallow. And I'm very careful I hunt this. So I'm not a big believer in putting scent elimination all over me, although I do take uh, sponge baths and a hot. It's, it's surprising how nice of a shower you can take in camp with a quart of water poured over you and then just suds down. So I try to keep somewhat clean, but the wind is so important. And the elk's nose is 10 times bigger than ours and it can smell 100 times better. So you can fool their eyes, you can fool their uh, ears, but you can never, ever fool their nose. Maybe once, maybe they'll go, oh, there's a camper, there's a horseback rider or something. But you start hanging out in the area too long and uh, letting the elk know you're in the area, they're going to change attitudes and, and location. So this one particular area, for an example, this meadow is only 70 yards long and 40 yards wide, but it's a headwaters of a creek and there's wet spots in it. And I noticed from right on, and I've always played the wind. I, wind is so, so much important on, I don't care what animal you're hunting, whether it's coos deer in Arizona or whitetails here or bighorn sheep, they're gonna, if they get your scent, they're gonna go. So I've always played the currents and I've always understood the cold currents in the morning and then the daytime thermos going up, up, up the opposite way. So for an example, the time I killed the bull out of a tree stand, I had a string actually hanging in front of my tree stand. I was only eight feet off the ground, but tucked back off this little meadow. And I could have a, a farthest shot would be, well, I'd want to take was 30 yards. But I had a string hanging off of a limb and I didn't have to keep my puffer ball, my dust blowing. It showed me the wind direction. So for the first couple hours, the cool breeze coming down at me kept the string pointing at me. But I knew around nine o'clock, it was going to hang straight down. And within 10 minutes, it was going to start blowing right out over the meadow. And that was the time I had to bail out of there. I had to get out and get out of there quickly, go, come in on the same trail I, I had come in on, go out the same trail, and go back to camp. And so what was interesting is that at 9 o'clock, the string was hanging straight down. I turned around on my tree stand to hang my bow up. Actually, I took the arrow off the rest, hung the put the arrow back in the quiver, hung it on a peg, 
put my release in my pocket, turned around to get my backpack, and about 18 yards away in the timber, I see dark tan of a hide and an antler tip. And there's a bull standing there. And I think he might have heard something, but there were a lot of squirrels in the tree. So he might have passed that on as just a squirrel. And he moved forward. I'm scrambling now because my, I got to get an arrow on the, on the rest. I've got to reach into my pocket and get my, my release. I got to turn around the tree stand. Luckily, he went over to a tree uh, behind some brush and started raking, on the, uh, raking his antlers. That gave me an extra two seconds. He steps out in the meadow 18 yards away. And it's quartering away. I put an arrow through this back rib, last rib and it came out his front shoulder. He ran across the meadow right past my trail camera. And I got a picture of him running past my trail camera, the arrow sticking out, and you can see me in the trail in the tree stand behind him. And he ran on 30 yards and did a death circle at the far end of the meadow and fell down dead right there. I need to see that photo. I'll send it to you. We've, we had some, anyway, it's another story about our other computer being hacked. But anyway, I'm on my wife's laptop. Well, you've mentioned Bowsight a few times now. Let me give you some parallels. Number one, Dwight Shue, very close friend of mine before he passed away, we had a podcast scheduled. I knew he was fighting. I knew he was close. We had it scheduled. He didn't make it long enough. So we should definitely talk about Dwight for a second. And then I've had the opportunity to hunt with Larry D. Jones for elk twice. He's just like you. He's just a stud. He's a stubborn stud, but he's a stud. And then Bowsight. I, I found Bowsight probably 2001 when I first got into elk hunting and I was on there and I think my handle was far beyond driven all one word. And I remember seeing your, what's your handle? Is it at the fort or something? Paul at the fort. Yeah, dude. I've, I've read, I've read posts from you before and I was a big bow sighter for a handful of years. It was the best place on the internet with the best people i've even done a hunt with don v at home is his handle we've done a yeah, bear he, hunt in alaska together okay nice and who's the is it pat lafemme or something that owns it yes is he still around he is cool i hope to see him at the pope and young convention in reno uh in 2023 uh, that's what i love about bow hunting paul is that it is a small little world of like-minded human beings Amen. Yeah, that is really true. That is really true. Changed my tactics. And so last year, for an example, uh, and Colorado's, like many Western states, are going through a drought. I just read an article in the local newspaper about Colorado rivers is one of the top endangered rivers in the nation. And the Snake River, where you live in Idaho, right, Yep, is, is number two on the list. And those couple of tributaries to the snake are lacking in moisture and lacking in, in stream walk flow. And so there's a big concern there. But uh, last year, the last couple of years, we've had meager snowfall in the mountains. And when I went back up there last year to hunt this, this meadow within a third of a mile of my camp, uh, it was dry. And so luckily I found the other wallow was back farther in the timber. And it was, it was at the bottom of two adjoining little hills in the dark timber. And it was water there. And I went, oh, thank you. That's where I killed an elk two years ago at 20 yards with my compound bow and two years ago. And last year, I killed a bull with my recurve bow in the same wallow. He was standing there drinking as he turned away, put an arrow through him, and uh, he went 40 yards and down he went. And that was my bucket list bull. That was a story I wrote for the Colorado Bowhunter uh, magazine, my bucket list bull. 
always wanted to kill an elk with my recurve and uh and so i did so that was a, that was a goal that i've had over the years so getting back to tactics so i hunt in the morning by nine o'clock nine fifteen i'm out of there or if a storm comes through and the wind starts kicking around i'll get down earlier i'll go back to camp a third of a mile away I'll have a late breakfast of instant oatmeal and a granola bar and some maybe hot tea or, or cider and maybe chew on some, uh, some goose jerky that I make. Maybe I'll shoot my bow. I have a diary. I have a camera. And I have, I've read at least 50 of Louis L'Amour books. And I'll always take a couple of those and I always have a couple in my truck if I need more reading material. And I can sit around and then, I'll, and then those wonderful midday afternoon naps are just wonderful. And so then uh, I eat my evening meal by four o'clock. If I'm going to hunt this other place, I can't hunt it in the morning because once I get over the ridge, the wind is at my back, draining down the hill to where the elk might be. And this is a long meadow. So I might just peek over the edge some mornings just to see if there's anything there. I could hear anything and I won't get, it, get there at all or go out there in that meadow at all until late afternoon. And then I'll go to a half a mile away down the meadow sit across from where I'm going to go in until I feel the cold air starting to drain, which is usually around six ish. And then I'll cross the meadow and stand there waiting on the trail. I got 400 yards to go in the timber and I'll have a, uh, one of those puffer wind directions and I'll start seeing if it's the wind in my face and I'll walk up the trail and I'll keep puffing along the way periodically to see if the wind is constantly in my face. If it stops and shifts start and back and forth, I'll, I'll just kneel down and sit, and sit there for maybe five or 10 minutes. Usually I can get to the wallow about 6.30 and then I've got an hour and 15 minutes to hunt and then I'll bail out, just come. So last year, for an example, I get there, I'm waiting, the cold air is in my, in my face. I'm behind a big pine tree. I've got a nice little comfortable seat. I'm 20 yards from the wallow. I'm in the dark shadows. I didn't call one bit because the decoy is the water. And at, uh, at 7.15, I see something moving off to my right in the shadows. And here comes a nice five by five, by five bull walking down the hill. And I thought he was going to come right to the wallow, but he circled away from me and disappeared. And I went, wow, maybe I spooked him. Maybe he felt something was right. Well, 10 minutes later, he comes walking right at me from the other side of the wallow, walks right up to the wallow. Almost like he knew I was there and he just threw out the sharpest, loudest bugle you could ever hear. And that's the closest I've ever been to have an elk bugle right in my face. I had my recurve bow, 55 pounds, 600 grain arrow, 175 grain VAP, ventless broadhead, sharp as a razor. I shot it well out to 30 yards, but my range is really 20, 25. And when he turned to go, I shot and hit him uh, behind the last rib and it went up and came out near his front shoulder and he raced across the meadow and into the dark timber and i went over there because it was going to be dark in 15 minutes i found some dark blood but no bubbles i found some hoof prints in the soil as i'm standing there back in the timber what sounded like a domestic cow mooing was actually this elk dying and letting out his last breaths all I had to do is follow the sound and walk over there and there he was dead. A nice, real nice five by five bull. He scored not 300, not 400, but 220. <laughs> a 220 bull, perfect on each side, but big whale tails at the end. Just mm. a really cool, 
elk, but a recurved bull elk. Onyx Hunt, this is the number one digital hunting application. I take it with me everywhere I go on my phone. Download your maps ahead of time and you know differences between state, BLM, national, private. You know where roads are at, terrain features. You can do all your e-scouting from a desktop via the desktop version and have all those waypoints and information transferred to your phone. Having a tremendous amount of confidence that it's not going to crash in the backcountry when you need it most and that you are legally hunting where you're allowed. The Elite membership will allow you to get free access to Hunt Reminder. This is a great app that will notify you when draw deadlines are approaching so that you never miss a deadline. You also get access to top rut which has arguably the best draw odds in the business and if that wasn't enough you also get access to hunt and full their digital publication with each state breakdown and analysis so you can plan your hunts ahead of time all this for 99 dollars plus when you enter the discount code elkshade it'll take 20 percent off wilderness athlete this is a supplement company not a marketing company the difference being these guys spend their dollars reinvesting into product development and i have been partnered with them for a very long time they just came out with their new hero which is hydrate energize recharge and overcome all you have to do is add water make sure you pick up a couple boxes of those for elk hunting season as well as hydrate recover energy and focus the green infusion daily multis fish oils probiotics protein powder post-workout pre-workout whatever you need whatever the goal wildernessathlete.com enter the discount code elkshape30 to save 30 percent off your first purchase baku e-bike elite fat tire e-bikes to help elevate your game i use the mule people ask me why do i not use the storm because i hunt out west and i need the extra wattage to get up steep terrain find a dealer near you by heading to baku.com for a quick little demo ride to see for yourself or get yourself a backcountry e-bike a trailer an extra battery use the discount code elk shape to save $300 off your purchase and utilize these e-bikes when you're chasing turkeys, bear, deer, elk, any sort of trail, logging road, where legal, they are an awesome resource for you to get in and get out quietly. And if you have a trailer, hopefully you're hauling precious elk meat back to the truck. Black Rifle Coffee Company. I am a huge fan of coffee. Probably guilty of maybe drinking too much, but I love Black Rifle. It's my alternative to Starbucks. These folks at Black Rifle are pro hunting, pro 2A, veteran owned. I can tell you right now, you guys should check out the coffee club. Join the club and you're going to get free shipping on your club orders. Automatic deliveries on your schedule so you can program it for when coffee should arrive at your doorstep. You'll get exclusive discounts from over 50 plus partner brands. And you can always tweak, tinker, or modify your subscription at any time to suit your fancy. My favorite all time is the Flying Elk. That should be no surprise. Black Rifle is a huge partner of Elk Shape. They support our message of crushing the elk hunting learning curve and leveraging elk hunting. Check out Black Rifle Coffee Club of the Month into the discount code Elkshape. Save 15% off and enjoy America-driven coffee from a veteran-owned company. Mm, you're legendary, man. I hope people are listening. I always get concerned they're not. They're falling in love with the story that you're telling, which you're telling quite well, but you're literally handing some nuggets. So Paul is meticulous. Paul is surgical. He is putting his odds at the highest that they can be by selecting the right times to hunt. Less is more because he is statistically putting himself when the wind is favorable. The fact that you, like storms come in when they come in, could be right at first light. You've hiked your butt off to get into position. You climb the stand, the wind's swirling. You know, and I know, you don't want to educate these elk for the long, slow play. Get down, back out, wait for the storm to clear. Number two, the fact that you stage away from that evening sit in the dark timber, checking your wind and patiently waiting for only an hour and 15. But that is the best hour and 15 minutes of the day and that you can rely on the water to attract them. Uh, I, I think this podcast is going to open some guys' eyes up to like, this is, this is surgery, can you be surgical and increase your odds? And that is really true. And also in funnel areas, if you can find the right funnel area from bed to feed, if you know where the elk come down a trail 
and are pretty consistent. And you can see some, some indicators, uh, fresh tracks, maybe a rub line a bull has communicated, maybe dr fresh droppings on the trail. Get off to the side, get on the downwind side. Your camo, all these different camos we have out today, you should be able to blend into any environment. Build a little natural blind, stand in thin timber or kneel down. I love shooting off my knees, kneeling down. Gives me a good stable platform when I draw. And I can also, under through the bottom of the timber, see elk walking a lot quicker than I can if I'm standing up and can't see their legs under the, the uh, different vegetations. So uh, there's ambushing. Like you said, using a, a, a bull call to, uh, to locate elk at night. And that's why I like camping out. I'll get up in the, in, at three o'clock in the morning, maybe take a pee break and, and just grab the bull tube and blow it like heck and then get your compass out. If you hear one, get your compass out and get a direction right where that bull might be. Maybe you already know that there's a meadow half a mile away. It's a great time to uh, locate an elk and see if there's any around. I had a friend who was one of the best elk callers I'd ever seen. And he had one of these, these huge elk calls that you do for, for elk calling competitions. But he used to play a, an instrument in the marching band. So he had lungs that you couldn't believe. And he could blow that call as loud as anything I've ever heard. And, but before he had, and I'd saw him do this and he'd just wake the elk up and they would respond immediately. I'd get out my little tube and try mine and it wouldn't travel half as far it wouldn't have that urgency to it but he could really know how to do it so there's no doubt about it but uh using the elk calls efficiently and effectively at the right time and talking elk to the elk that you got to know what they're saying and then you got to know how to respond and i think paul mendel there's a really a good did that he sells a lot of great videos and has some books and on it and he, he'd be surely one that i would uh investigate uh, as, a, as a newbie or even somebody who wanted, just wanted to pick up some more skills. But yeah, I, I think I have, uh, I slow play uh, the elk anymore. I've found an area that's, uh, that's been productive. Now, if I don't draw that area this year, I'm gonna have to really kind of scramble to think where in the heck am I gonna hunt? Because there's no doubt about it, over-the-counter areas in Colorado are becoming more uh, crowded and it's, it's, being a, it's, a big, it's becoming a challenge of finding a, a place that nobody has been there, but you can have it by yourself. But so, yeah, so changed my tactics, found the right place, slow play it, be there when I wanna be, when I think that my best opportunities are, uh, and that's paid off with uh, four bulls and a cow over the last seven years. That's awesome stuff. I wanted to get into your work that you've put in with the Colorado Bow Hunters Association. What exactly is that entity? What exactly do you do for that entity? And what are your guys' values? What are your goals? What are you trying to accomplish? So when I was in Ohio, I, uh, I joined the Ohio Bow Hunters. I'm a joiner, I, I, especially in things I really, in, really like to put my time in. And Colorado Bow Hunters or the Ohio Bow Hunters were one of them. And they weren't as active. And of course, what do we have in Ohio is deer and turkeys. When I moved to Colorado in 1991 and bought a business on Lake Granby, I heard a, a seminar that Dale Peach gave in, in, in locally, and it was advertised in the newspaper. I went there and I joined immediately. I, uh, these guys were brothers and bow hunters. And I joined the CBA back then. And since I had a business, 
I was an area rep, which means that I would volunteer my services at various events in the area if needed, or go to the, some of the Division of Wildlife meetings and just be there in supporting maybe the division liaison or the legislative liaison or the director of the CBA who might be there at that meeting. And that proved to be very beneficial to us over the years. So CBA has been around for almost 70 years. Wow. Yes. Yeah. Longstanding. And so I certainly understand because I had a family, two children, I had a job. And there were times when I just could not volunteer my services anywhere in the country like I'd really want to. But when I retired at the age of 62 in, in 2002, I saw that there was an opening for the board of directors at the oh. CBA. And so I applied for that and I had a pretty good background. I had some writing skills, some speaking skills, some organizational skills. I was accepted as one of the board meetings at large. Six months later, the Division of Wildlife Liaison, who we've always had a liaison at the commissioner's meetings, and we've always had a legislative liaison also, working with the legislatures about hunting and outdoor activities and what bills or legislative action might affect us, give us reports. So somebody came up to me and said, hey, Paul, why don't you, why don't you be the Division of Wildlife Liaison? I said, well, I don't, really don't have a great feeling about the division and how they operate and what they actually do and what the commission does. And I'm just learning about the CBA and what our mission is. I said, but if you two guys who had been in this position before would mentor me for six months, I'll do it. And they did. Uh, Conrad Dreyer and Bob Ridosi took me under their wing. They gave me the ins and outs of what I could expect. I could bring forth my own view of how to go to these meetings and how to interact and how to take charge and how to plan and how to report back to the board. And so I did that for, uh, so I was on the board for seven years and was the division liaison for six years. And I attended every wildlife commission meeting across the state for six years. And every two months I would write a column in the CBA magazine about what went on at these board meetings. Did anything happen that might affect bow hunting or hunting in general in Colorado and any other thing that might come up? That was my biggest play with the CBA. I still go to the board meetings because I have some experience and some history of the CBA board, and it can help out some of the new members that come on board with a little bit of background, like Conrad Dreyer also. He was one of, almost one of the founding guys of the CBA. He comes to the board meetings too, and we can just add our knowledge and a little history on what has happened in the past. I was the uh, CBA uh, banquet chairman four years ago here in Fort Collins, and we did a really nice job. And I was the captain of the ship, but my crew was wonderful. They kept the ship going in a straight line and fast, and we raised a good amount of money for the CBA for our mission. I was also a Becoming a Bowhunter Program Coordinator for the Northeast area in Colorado, where we would open up a program, becoming a bow hunter for anybody who wanted to become a bow hunter, whether they even hunted or not. We taught them about the history of the bow and how to shoot the bow properly and the safety behind it. And then we, if they passed that, we took them out to the range. It was shoot or no shoot at 3D animals. But even before that, they had to take bow hunter safety course. So there's the two. And then if they wanted to and could, 
I would take them on a mentored hunt for whitetails or turkeys out in Eastern Prairie on private property. So I did that for five years. And I've given some seminars at uh, some of the banquets with CBA. I did one on hunting the, the gray ghost, the coos deer down in Arizona, which I've been very successful. I gave a seminar on hunting the Colorado Big Eight from the prairie up until 13,000 feet where I killed my uh, mountain goat. Not that high, it was 12,000. And so there's, and then uh, recently, not so much concerning CBA, but sort of, uh, the Division of Wildlife has four areas, pretty well divided equally across Colorado, four regions. And uh, so I was just elected and volunteered and elected as the Colorado Parks and Wildlife Spokesperson Caucus Representative. And we have two, year, two meetings a year. We get local input from the region, regional sales uh, spokespeople. We invite the uh, staff of the park, Colorado Parks and Wildlife to come and they give an overview of what's going on in that region. And then we give a feedback on what our, spoke, our people have concerns or recommendations. And we mesh that all together. And then twice a year, we have a statewide meeting. And so uh, I volunteered for that. So it helps me keep abreast of what's going on. It helps me, my gray matter working, it keep, keeps me in, uh, involved in the hunting uh, industry. I was even the stop the wolf coordinator for the Eastern Colorado when that came up as a ballot initiative. So those are some of the things I, I've done for CBA. Oh, and I, I actually, I judge the, and manage I don't judge, but I manage the elk calling and turkey calling contest at, at the Jamboree uh, every year and hand out little trophies to peewees and people that sound like elk and better than others or sound like turkeys. So I do that. So, and then I, I love, I like writing some articles for the CBA magazine. And here's one I just wrote about this bucket list bull. There is, there is me. Let's see, where am I? Yep. Right there hiking up to elk camp a couple of years ago with, or last year with my recurve bow, wrote a whole article about my bucket list bowl and uh, what I did to, to do that and how that all came about. So it's, it's fun stuff. And then I, as you know, I'm on both site and I, I try to be uh, non-controversial and I just try to be positive there and, and give a positive outlook about hunting and bring some facts forward about different things. So Colorado Bow Hunter Association, they give out awards every year. They give out Bow Hunter of the Year, which is a pretty prestigious award. Who won that this year and have you ever won that? Well, yes, I have. 10 years ago, I was Bow Hunter of the Year for Colorado Bow Hunters. This year, I was nominated for area, state area rep of the year because I get involved. There's a lot of guys doing some great things, you know, and, and so these are all nice, but it's just natural for me to do it. Whether there was awards out there or not, I'd just do it anyway. But yes. it's nice. It's no doubt about it. It's nice to be recognized, but it's not essential for me to be recognized. If someone just patted on the back and said, thanks, Paul, that'd be, you know, I don't smoke cigars, but, you know, <laughs> but anyway, a pat on the back would be just fine. But uh, yeah, there's been, there's, there's been some great, great people that have been bow hunters over the years. Uh, Craig Kimball was bow hunter of the year. Uh, and then we had the pandemic, so we didn't have a banquet. And then, uh, oh, gee, I'm going to mess his name up. Oh, I'm having a senior moment, and I'm allowed to do that. So anyway, but uh, great guys. Oh, I know. Wait, wait, wait. No. This year, John Gardner. John Gardner, board on the directors of Pope and Young, is a taxidermist over near Durango. He's killed uh, the Colorado Big Eight a couple times. 
He's been a member of so many organizations. He has given so much of his life into bow hunting and the, and the hunting industry. It's amazing. I had the opportunity to score him as all the past bow hunters a year score the, the sheets of uh, up and coming applicants. And he did very well with all the things he's, he's, he's done for, for CBA and the hunting industry in and out of Colorado. So John Gardner. Yeah. Great, oh, great, awesome. great ambassador for, for bow hunting and, and CBA also. Your crystal ball, 82 years young. Where are we, where are we, are we headed in the right direction? When I'm talking about, we, I'm talking about, we as elk hunting brethren and sistren and subgroup bow hunters of that species and the way things are going what what would you change what would you modify what would you maybe stop or start doing if it were up to you that's a long loaded question yes it is <laughs> it really is yeah well as far as elk hunting because there aren't too many restrictions about deer hunting except in colorado it's all limited draw for deer but other states like nebraska i go over there and deer hunt every year it's over the counter Kansas is limited draw. And I can understand that the supply and the demand sort of conflict with each other. Are you like me? Do you just love trail cameras? Slightly addicted to them? Yeah, guilty as charged. I work with SpyPoint. They have several affordable trail cameras. Some are going to be cellular. Some are going to be non-cellular. So the difference is being one, the Force Pro, non-cellular, very affordable, extremely reliable, just under $200. Or you can look up the Link S, that's the dark, or the Micro LTE Twin, where you get a two-pack of cellulars. They come with the SIM cards, so you don't need to pay out-of-pocket monthly to utilize your cellular trail cameras. You can download the free app and get your 100 photos a month that you choose. Cell trail cameras are where it's at, where legal, and where you have at least two bars. You're going to get extremely important real-time information, and you don't have to go in and disturb your area, get your scent ground and bump any animals i like trail cameras from a biological standpoint i don't really depend on them to get animals killed but i do depend on them to understand animal behavior biology animal densities and see if i can focus on patterns where i can take advantage and know how to get in and get out of these places so i am addicted to trail cams i love the app it's bulletproof from spy point so check out spy point when you get a hot minute or next time you're in the market for a trail camera if you're looking for cellular i'm probably gonna recommend the link s dark over all of them but if you're on a budget get the link micro twin two pack where you have two cell phone trail cameras working for you under 200 dollars. or if you just want to run normal trail cameras check out the force pro there's a couple different versions out there i use the force pro or the force 20 both are really sweet and then last but not least if you already have a trail camera and you want to turn it into a cell phone trail camera they have a product for you called the cell link 59.99 attaches to your existing trail camera you don't have to have a sim card and it will start sending you photos to your phone check out spypoint.com for more information vortex optics a partner of elk shape since 2010 veteran known based out of wisconsin the vip warranty itself that's transferable whether you buy your vortex optics used from a buddy or buy it retail from a store that vip warranty follows your product no questions asked you break it they fix it we're gonna give you guys a quick little tip being a handful of months away from elk season one thing you can do right now, and this tip is presented by Vortex, is that you can start writing on the calendar your hunt plan, the dates that you plan on leaving, so that your wife or your spouse knows what you're thinking ahead of time. Sounds silly, but I used to not communicate very well with my wife and then surprise her right at hunting season and then, hey, I'm going to be gone the entire month. Not anymore. Now, as soon as I draw a tag or have a hunt plan secured, I'm up on the calendar writing it down and going over with it. Even though she's probably gnashing her teeth a little bit at me, at least it gives her plenty of time to plan around and make sure that we are on the same page. Happy wife is a happy life, and to hunt your best, things need to be dialed at home. This tip was brought to you by Vortex. Go to Vortex Wear and use the discount code ELKSHAPE to save 20% on your workout scouting gear that Vortex Wear makes. 
Nice. Appreciate you guys' support. Matthews Archery out of Sparta, Wisconsin, rocking the V3X29 and 33. I think you guys know this by now, but I'm pretty much in love with that 29. It fits me like a glove. I like the 33. It's probably my favorite bow to shoot, but when we're talking about chasing elk in the elk woods, I'm going to pack that 29 around. Fits me a little bit better. I shoot it a little bit better. You should go test drive a V3X. I think it's their best product to date, and you can really streamline your setup by using the bridge lock to get the sight in the middle of the riser. You have the new Low Pro quivers that fit tighter than anything has ever fit to a bow. You can really streamline your setup with the new technology from Matthews. Plus, they run the cross centric cams, so you can easily switch out mods. You don't have to switch out limbs if you want to change your draw weight your draw length or your let off all that can be done without a press matthews archery killing it and i love shooting my matthews i'm absolutely in love you guys should go check it out at a dealer near you and so here in colorado for the deer population back in the early 90s it was taking a big hit because it was all over the counter and there was really no i won't say no but they needed more management of the deer herds and particularly mule deer who are losing ground all across the west for a variety of reasons from predation to human interaction as far as as taking over uh, wildlife spaces and building homes and infrastructure uh, and maybe even lack of food maybe the drought is another thing maybe diseases maybe so a lot of things are going on so there's no doubt that some states had to start controlling the deer populations a lot better and colorado took that upon themselves to do that but the elk in colorado we've got the largest elk herd in colorado and colorado advertises us every year and they're advertising out of state that we've got close to 300,000. Actually, in the late 90s, early 2000s, we, they guesstimated 320,000 elk in Colorado. And then uh, later I heard that they were going to try to reduce that to 265,000 because there was too many elk on the landscape in certain areas. And they were p- paying out thousands of dollars in game damage for agriculture and there were elk being killed on the highways, things like that. But today they're guesstimating at 285,000 elk in Colorado. And the advertisement is come one, come all. We've got over-the-counter tags. If you're a muzzleloader, you have limited draw, but 75% of the elk are actually in over-the-counter areas. And that's for rifle and for archery. So come to Colorado, buy a tag and go hunting. The odds for bow hunting is only 10%, maybe 11. Yep. So we kill about 5,000 elk a year out of 50,000 hunters. So that means that uh, 40,000 hunters come out to Colorado and have a great time, maybe do or don't, and go home. Some will come back. Some will never come back. But that, that is growing where other states are being more restrictive, like Wyoming is going, was it 80-20? Yes. They've just ter- turned the table on 80-20. And other states are becoming more restrictive. So I don't know how many hunters you have to eliminate to bring it back into the good old days when there weren't very many hunters around and there was less crowding. But the big, the big banner now is the woods seem to be more and more crowded. And what are you going to do about a divisional wildlife? So I don't know what it's going to do. We're going to have a five-year season structure change in three years. And they're starting to re- review it right now. So what would I change? I loved hunting elk every year. And so I vote for over-the-counter tags, but what's the ramifications of having continuous over-the-counter tags? I don't complain at all about actually the last, the last five elk I've killed have been in a limited draw area, but it takes, there's some limited dryers you can find them, it takes zero points. Not all of them, but maybe a third of the tags might be zero points, maybe one or two or points. So you could hunt them every other year. So some bow hunters are saying, I'd rather hunt every two, three years if I can have a quality area 
with less crowding, but how many bow hunters do you have to eliminate to have less crowding? And bow hunters, as you know, are very particular on who's around them while they're hunting because we have to get close. We're not, we can't shoot 500 yards away or 300 yards away. So whether it's a hiker, biker, ATVer, another bow hunter, we're concerned about other people crowding us. And so we're more apt to say crowding is an issue versus not being an issue. So I don't know what the, how the vision is going to handle this. They just send out 6,000 surveys, 3,000 of residents and 3,000 of non-residents, and they divide them equally between archers, muzzleloaders, and rifle hunters. And they ask a variety of questions. I wasn't privy to that. I asked if I could see the survey and they didn't send it to me. But I'm sure they're asking some leading questions about how do you feel about the archery season? Do you think it's overcrowded or on and on and on? And they'll take that information and try to put it all together in a report. And then that will help them make a decision in three years about the five-year season structure, whether they're going to go first come, first serve on over-the-counter tags with caps on them. Are they going to have more limited draw areas in Colorado? That's going to push other guys from the draw, limited draw to over-the-counter areas. It's going to create more crowding here and there. So they have a big handful of, of issues they have to address. And then if they want to be fund, funding neutral, if we eliminated half the non-residents of 25 to 12,000, the resident tag or the resident tag would go up to $350 each instead of $60 each. And the Division of Wildlife would use, lose uh, over $18 million if they start reducing non-resident tags. So they have, a, they have a big issue in front of them, how to solve all that. I've been very pleased with the drawings. I, I got my uh, sheep tag in the six years, and I got my goat tag in eight years. Mountain lions are over the counter. I got both of my deer in a limited draw area, but that was fine. Bear, I called in with a predator call, and that was fun. Called in the mountain lion, but I, he saw me drawing my bow and got away, and I had to hire a, a guide with hounds uh, the following year. I don't know what I'd change. I... I I think there's just a, a more perceived uh, crowding in, during bow season, that 30 days, and some places more than others, maybe more in Southern Colorado, where you have more people that find Southern Colorado easier to get to from California, Oklahoma, Texas, Arizona, places like that, maybe a little less crowding up North, maybe a lot of crowding along the front range, but here and there to get away from the crowding, people have just like you have learned to get back in because like Kafaru, and I was on uh, Aaron Snyder's program a few years back when I was the banquet chairman, and he wanted to know about CBA. With all the gear that is available and all the freeze-dried food, a person can go in there and stay two weeks at a time like I do, and a lot of people are doing that now. They're not coming out at dark or before dark. What, what I'd change, uh, I'd love to see over-the-counter, but, but reality, reality is setting in that a lot of people are attracted to Colorado because of the elk herd and the advertising that's going on. And all the social media that was never around years ago, people just figured out, put some gas in the truck and get over here and go hunt, have some fun and give it a try. And I actually listened to Dan yesterday when you interviewed him from Wisconsin. Okay. Yeah. And that was a spot on advice you were giving him. The advice I'd give Dan, if he lives down near Lake Michigan, that's an elevation around 500 feet. And he's going to be hunting somewhere around maybe nine, five, I hunt at 10 too. So he could hunt anywhere from 9,500 to 10,5. And the availability of oxygen drops about 6% from 20% down to about 14. 
So it's all about legs and lungs and broken in boots. <laughs> Amen to that. And how about knee, knee uh, sleeves? Yeah. I started wearing knee sleeves a few years ago to go up and down the hills, the camp and back, especially with a load. And they have saved my knees, knee sleeves. Yeah. Knee sleeves. Yeah. The brand I recommend folks listening is Reband, R-E-B-A-N-D. I wear compression for my knees when I squat heavy. I will be wearing them when I get older. I do want to bend your ear. And, and guys listening, I don't live in Colorado, so what I'm about to say doesn't matter. But you're the right guy to maybe bend your ear. A couple things, just from a guy who's got 14 or 15 non-resident preference points in Colorado for elk. I'm in purgatory, no man's land. Can't do – I would love to see Colorado look at a couple other states that they're neighboring and look at some of the best practices. Idaho took their non-resident tags – Put them on sale December 1st. First come, first serve, kind of. They have a queue where you log in and 30 to 50,000 bow hunters, don't don't fact check me, but something like that. Thousands of bow hunters log in and you're randomly assigned your number and they just go through it by your random assigned number and you can buy whatever tag is available. The downfall to that program is um, if you and I wanted to hunt Idaho together, Paul, we would have to hope that we both got in at the same time to get our tags. So it's very difficult to plan our hunts. But it is technically over the counter and it's dispersed the hunting pressure throughout all the over the counter areas. And then it doesn't take into consideration all the people that have moved to Idaho that can just buy their tag unlimited. You have a lot of California people that have moved to Idaho and from other places. And so the resident hunting pressure has gone up significantly in your state and in Idaho. But my point to all this is that I would like to see Colorado look at possibly requiring a point to hunt some, like more, like maybe block off more of the -the over-the-counter units, not all of them, but maybe more of them as a one-point skin in the game, first choice. I'd love to see Colorado allow people like me to share points and have a mean average. So if I have 15 points and and my buddy over here, Jake, has one point, our average going into the draw is one point. They don't do a mean average, and that's not a huge deal, but it would be really nice to see that. Two more. I hate, and that is a strong word, but I cannot stand the idea of sharing the woods with a muzzleloader when I'm trying to bow hunt. In my state of Washington, archery is two weeks nobody is hunting elk for about a week. Then the muzzleloader guys can hunt elk for a week. And it's a great season. It's like the first week in October. And a lot of times I'll hunt muzzleloader in Washington because I can use a bow. And that's me choosing to share the woods with muzzleloaders. But where you guys have muzzleloader guys coming in third week of September, and I know it didn't get passed, but they – they were thinking about making it a requirement for bow hunters to wear orange, which makes me want to throw up. I know that didn't pass. So I despise that. I think they need to rethink that. And then lastly, this is from a North Idaho dude. It's really unfortunate what's going to happen to your state as the wolves continue to thrive and grow in population. And they will because I've seen it happen to my home 
area as I started hunting pre-wolf. Sure, there was a wolf or two here or there, but nothing to the, like where I've literally left my best hunting areas because I just tired of running into wolves. And by running into, I mean like calling them in, bumping into them when I'm trying to kill an elk, hearing them howl all over the place, finding all their kills, whether it be calves or mature bulls, they'll kill it, you know. So that's kind of my bone to pick with Colorado. What do you think about any of that? There's no doubt that there's going to be a lot of public input in the next few years through surveys, through public meetings, through staff recommendations on the direction that Colorado might go to solve the crowding issue, fairness issue uh, between resident and non-residents, to be fair to the muzzleloaders, to be fair to the rifle hunters. I, I use the analogy, it's like a big piece of pie, but the pie is not getting any bigger, but everybody wants a bigger share of it. <laughs> if, you, if you look back historically, the 30-day the early season did actually have a word in it that defined it. It was a primitive weapon season. And back in the day, there was a muzzleloading season and an archery season going on and a nine-day muzzleloading season starting that in that third week for nine days. And when I became the division liaison in the early 2000s, the board directed me to explore moving the muzzleloading season out of the 30-day archery season, as we might call it. About the same time, the Division of Wildlife changed the definition of the early season to a early season and a season for a variety of manners of take, manners of take, and also for game management purposes. And what, so what happened is that the word primitive left it and it became a, a 30 day opportunity for a variety of manners of take and wildlife management. And they also allowed rifle hunters on public land to come into certain areas to kill off cow elk that were being too numerous. So that was going on during that 30 day season. The muzzleloading season at that one time was over the counter plus some limited drawers. Now muzzleloader season is all limited draw. Uh, so that has changed over the years. And there's only about, there's about 25,000 muzzleloaders in that nine day season. Now, so that has historically been there in that 30 day season. When we ask about what's the, what's the possibility of moving that out of the early season, uh, 30 days and do it right after archery, the Division of Wildlife said, we want to have a quiet time between the end of archery, the end of muzzleloading, and the start of gun season. So the elk have a tendency to leave their hidey holes, leave and maybe disperse from private property where some of them have gone to get refuge and have them filter back onto national forest. That's that quiet time. And so that was a reason why they didn't want to take the muzzleloading season and put it in that first week in, in October. And that's where it went. And they said, then if you feel that the muzzleloader season hunters are a safety issue or causing some other type of wall for you, uh, we can fix that issue really well. We will give them the last nine days of the season and you the first 21 days of the season. Yikes. Yes. That's what we said. Yikes. So we surveyed our members because the CBA is a membership organization. And we told our members this. And some of our members said, wait a minute, 
Uncle Billy from Ohio comes out and muzzleloader hunts and I can bow hunt in the same camp. We have a heck of a time every year. And so we heard that quite often that one camp could have muzzleloaders and bow hunters in it. Other hunters, the majority of them said, we don't want to give up nine days. We'll work around the muzzleloading season. Some will say, I just won't hunt that first weekend. I won't hunt the first five days because most of the guided hunts are over in five days. Most of the guys are going to only be hunting weekends. And so we just said status quo. Okay. And after we, so that issue, but that's, that was, that was over, that was over 15 years ago. So they're going to, they're going to continue to look at that today to see where this is all going to go because we had 44,000 bow hunters back when I was a divisional liaison. Now we've got 54,000. Yep. Now we're being pushed a little bit more, not so much in a corner, but we're trying to realize why can't they put the muzzleloading season the first week or nine days of October? What is the reasons why they don't? And we're exploring those reasons. And are they valid today? Like for an example, back in the day when cattle would be driven and not carted in big trucks to the high country or back and forth to the rain to the winter range that first two weeks in october ranchers were driving their cattle out of the out of the high country and they didn't want hunters in the area and that was one reason why i keep hearing and we keep hearing that that was the reason why we had that quiet time and there were some other reasons too so we're exploring those to see if those are valid they're hearing a lot and looking at what what Arizona's does has done, what uh, Wyoming is is doing, uh, what Idaho has done. Colorado likes to think that let's not mix apples and oranges. We're the apple, no, all those other states are oranges. And we we're Colorado and we like to manage our our people and our wildlife the way we do. Sure, we'll look at how they're doing it and maybe we'll pick up some of those. And maybe this is the time when they're gonna start saying, hey, Utah or Idaho or Wyoming has a great idea. Let's just mask what they're doing or let's use part of that. So that all is this public survey they just sent out and they're going to get that back and they're going to have meetings and then they're going to have a draft statement and then they're going to go before the commission. And then the commission is going to open up the house to people to, you know, give them their, uh, their ideas. So it's going to be a, a, a next three years. It's going to, it's going to be a, uh, kind of hot and heavy on, on what's actually going to happen. Even though I did that life plan about uh, hunting until I'm hundred being realistic, will I be elk hunting in 10 years? I, I certainly hope for the best. That's what I hope for. If C, if the division of wildlife can show us the science and show us the issues, I think CBA can get on the board with almost anything, as long as the, the reasons are, are adequate and, uh, and meaningful beneficial to not only division of wildlife, but also bow hunters and other hunters too. So it's it's quite a it's quite a task that they have and i've gone to a lot of wildlife commissions and and listened to a lot of issues that have come up over the years and i've even presented some issues and testified before the board or the, the commission on certain bow hunting issues over the years and so it's it's an ongoing practice but i think i think anybody that is listening to this is a bow hunter and hunts colorado should be a cba member and as john gardner said if you're not a CBA member, and I'll quote him, shame on you. <laughs> so, so for years, uh, I hunted Kansas, Nebraska, and Arizona, and I joined their CBA, their, their bow hunting organizations for the years that I hunted those states. 
just to mm. support them. I love that. Yeah. I was going to tell you the last thing I really wanted to pick your brain before, and I've taken up a lot of your time. I'm sorry. I just enjoy this. I've got all day. Awesome. It would be a shame, speaking of shame, to not have you kind of end this podcast because here's the deal, Paul. I preach separation is in the preparation. I, I don't think that needs any explanation. Like we are fortunate to be elk hunters. You have this ultimate gift that you can leverage to make life plans, you know, and include hunting in part of your why you got to do all these other things. So would you be willing to just maybe speak generally or specifically on the steps you take year round to be able to still pursue elk hunting at your age, which is my, like, that is my ultimate goal is to be you. Yes, I'd be glad to. Well, as I said previously, this is a lifestyle and a lifestyle that needs to be started at a young age. It's easy for us. And I went through this. I ran two marathons before I hit 40. I could rely on a fairly strong body at that time. But once you get to be in your 45 and 50, and I came out to Colorado when I was 51. And in the next 11 years, I killed eight of those species from as high as you can go in the mountains after goats to down on the prairie for pronghorn. But I always kept in shape and kept my body tuned and kept and watched what I eat. And I didn't drink. And I, if I drink a half a beer a month, that's a lot. And I don't drink alcohol and I don't, you know, so. So I've always been conscious of uh, being in shape because if I wanted to continue to enjoy the out of doors and I love bow hunting, I do use a shotgun for ducks, but I, I've killed over a hundred geese with my bow. But anyway, I love upland game. I have a black lab out in the kennel and I have a new black lab pup on order for next uh, August. And I'll train him and run him in field trials. And those dogs keep me young and I keep them healthy. It's just been a lifestyle of mine. And 20 years ago, when Trish and I moved to Fort Collins from the mountains, and it was easy to pretty well, it was easy to stay in shape when we had our lodge for 10 years, because I was on my feet 12, 14 hours a day, serving food and behind the bar and then cutting firewood and getting snow off the roof and painting the lodge and doing landscaping and on and on and on that I was just burning up calories, staying in shape. But when I retired, uh, I needed some type of another outlet. And so I joined the local gym 21 years ago. And in the winter, I go probably every, sometimes I'll go every day. And then sometimes my body says, Paul, don't go today. And you've got to read your body. And so, and as athletes, we do, we, we have our little aches and pains and our body's telling us to do something and don't overdo something. And, and sometimes when you think that no pain, no gain, well, when you get older, you got to do things in moderation. So I started going to the gym 20 some years ago, and here's how my workout has changed some. I used to run the track, jog, let's say jog. And then now, but all I do is fast walk and then I'll carry 10 pounds in each hand or five pounds in each hand to do exercise while I'm walking. And I'll do that for a, maybe a mile, mile and a half, like I did this morning. And then I go down and I lift some dumbbells and I do uh, 22 pounds. I used to go 20s, 30s, 40s until I did 40s 15 years ago and ripped some muscles in my, in my uh, arm. And I realize it's going to take forever for that arm to heal. Now, maybe when you're younger, it might be a couple of weeks for an older guy like me. 
it's going to take maybe a month. So I don't do 40s anymore. I don't even do 30s anymore. I go up to maybe I'll do 20s, 25s, and that's it. So I'm, I'm stretching a lot more. So when I go to the gym, I go up into the stretching area and, I, and for a half hour, I just stretch, stretch, stretch everything. And then I'll go down and start working out, but I don't overdo it. And I've been doing that for 20 years. Right here behind you, me is, look at this. Little bench set, yeah. There you go. And there's some dumbbells on the floor. And out in the garage is a rope pulley weight system that I can pull the strength in my fly fishing arm and my bow shooting arm. And then in the, in the office, the other office, I have a stationary bike. So if things are bad outside, if the pandemic happens again and I can't go to the gym, I can work out right here at home and get some exercise, whether it's cardio or whether it's, whether it's physical. And this stuff in any town, you can go to a surplus place and people are buying this stuff and using it once and then selling it and you can buy it cheap. And so it's been a lifestyle. And I weigh right now, I weigh 190 pounds. All right. After hunting season, I'll get down to about 184, 185. My goal, moderate workouts, but be consistent. So here's what I'll start doing. I don't want to be 190, 191 like I am now. I want to be 185. That's my fighting weight. I weighed 178 pounds playing football in high school. All right. So what? 50 years later, I'm 10 pounds heavier. So I can lose that five pounds. But here's what I do to remind myself, because I like oatmeal cookies. I like ice cream. I like pies. I put on my refrigerator. Paul, write it. No eating after dinner. All right. Because at 930, you're sitting there watching TV. You go, oh, boy, how about some chocolate cake and ice cream? Yeah. How about it? Buck Knives out of Post Falls, Idaho. My neighbor, in 2020, I completely buried a knife into my hand, and it was not a fixed blade. It was one of those scalpel replaceable ones that break real easy, and I buried it so deep that I actually, the doctor recommended surgery, which I might have, should have listened, but I didn't. Anyways, several stitches later, in a week of elk hunting down the drain, I got my hand healed up. Since that day, I've vowed not to use scalpels anymore in the field, and so I've switched back to Buck Knives, tried and true since 1902, made in America, tremendous amount of history. They're also my everyday carry, so you should check out the new Everyday Carry 22 lineup from Buck Knives. They got the 110 Slim Pro TX that's probably my all-time favorite for everyday carry you can also check out the 110 hunter sport knife or the 112 ranger 50th anniversary edition if you're looking for a skinner i would maybe consider the customizable 113 ranger skinner knife that's the knife that i customize for all my elk shape camp spirit of elk shape camp awards and that's the knife that we use to skin all my elk in 2021 if there's a knife out there that you need they can customize it or you can peruse their website buck knives is a huge supporter of elk shape we appreciate them and we love being their neighbor please be careful when you're breaking down your animal and consider switching to a fixed blade just for me crispy usa crispy boots my favorite boots because they don't require any break-in period for stocking any animal out west it's laponia gtx this is a very affordable boot this is not a 500 boot it's very athletic and it's a quiet boot and it's definitely something that could help you sneak in tighter to animals so if you're a stalker you might want to check out laponia gtx if you're looking for another affordable boot that's perfect for elk hunting it's the colorado gtx i know cameraman jake and myself that's our both our favorite number one boot from crispy it's the one that gets the most use and two is one i have two pairs because i like to switch out boots every day the colorados are not insulated which is great for me to keep my feet from sweating it has board lasting mechanical construction it includes the abss ankle support system which helps propel you forward it's got a four flex rating they're protected with Kevlar triple stitching, polyurethane coated, and leather ran. The height is eight inches, and one boot weighs under two pounds. They're super light, they're fast, they're very athletic to help you keep up with elk. The last thing I want to mention about boots is number one, all your hunting starts from the ground up. Choose wisely. Number two, consider putting sheet feet inside any pair of boots that you rock. Sheet feet are a full length custom orthotic built for your feet specifically. Use the discount code ELKSHAPE, it'll take 10% off your purchase. I run sheet feet in every piece of boot I wear. I obviously have several pairs of boots, but the sheet feet are always in there. I think they help me leak less energy every stride, every step. They keep my feet strong and durable. And the last thing I would want for any of you hunting is to have foot issues while trying to hunt. Hunt your best, include sheet feet on your must list for 2022. 
So yeah, how about it? So I have a sign there saying, don't do it. It warms up a little bit more, maybe another couple of weeks. Here's not going to be my regiment for my summer regiment to get elk shape. It's going to be hiking and biking. So hiking, I'm very fortunate within a quarter of a mile of the house, there's these canals that come through Fort Collins and I live north of Fort Collins, but I can walk these canals for a couple of miles and I'll take my dog along there because he's a black lab, he loves the water. And I'll put two to three gallons of, of, of water in the backpack and hike that trail back and forth. I'll do that one day, maybe two days in a row. Maybe the next day I'll get on my mountain bike and I don't go up in the mountains. I drive, go over to Wellington, which is 10, 12 miles from here and do a round trip. Or I'll go over to Laporte, which is 12 miles and do a round trip and go over Bingham Hill. That's the big test. I got to stand up in low gear to get over the top. But then I can coast down the other side. And one time I did that, I went to a little restaurant and had a coffee and a cookie. I felt so bad about that. I returned and came over the other way just to burn off those 300 calories. <laughs> And so I'll start doing this in the summer. And so what will happen, and I'll do that for two months, right up to elk season. Then I feel elk and I be, it's legs and lungs and, and some strength, but not overdoing it. And then on the refrigerator, I'll put things not to eat. So what I'll do most of that time, but not all, I'll eat nothing but fruit in the morning at my apple, orange, and bananas. Maybe a little granola in there, but that's it. No dairy, no cheese, no yogurts, no crackers, no cookies, but fruit in the morning and a little bit of granola. For lunch, I'll do peanut butter and celery sticks. And then in the evening, I'll go down to the store and I'll get coleslaw already packaged. And I'll pull, throw that, a nice helping of that in a bowl. I'll put, I'll, uh, I'll cook up some uh, elk burger, turkey burger, something like that and uh, saute that, throw that in there, put some cran raisins in, uh, maybe a little bit of fruit, and I'll eat that for dinner. And I'll do that, and I'll drop those, I'll drop that weight. And I'll, it probably, oh, and then, so not only do I put, don't eat this, but then I'll put my weight at start and a goal of 185, and then every week I'll weigh myself and I can actually see mm -hmm. whether I'm losing or not losing. And that gives me a visual contact visual contact of my goals for losing that weight and then staying in shape is you know I, I just do it i'm active around the house i was out working on my sprinkler system i was putting a new gate across the backyard because when this new puppy comes i don't want to run out in the highway and so i'm always active that way but keeping active doing them moderately and especially as you get older there's guys out there that well typically at the gym i see people make new year's resolutions you see brand new people come to the gym in january and then you never see them again. They're there for 30 days and they're gone. But I see some of these guys that have been coming to the gym. And I, and fortunately, as I get older, we're going to lose friends. And I see guys that used to could be at the gym. They're not around anymore. So I'm very fortunate and happy and blessed the, blessed the Lord for looking over me. I had cancer for my 70th birthday, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. But the doctor said, based on where it's at and where we caught it, I think I can dissolve that tumor, which is half the size of your heart. And after the second chemo and he did, and that's been 12 years ago, I was lucky, but I've had friends and close friends that have not with us anymore just because of that. But, uh, but, and I, I, I listened to Dan yesterday on your podcast or a couple of days ago about his uh, challenge of wanting to go elk hunting yeah. and what he has to go through to get in elk shape. 
he's got quite a goal and uh, you were right on about giving him advice. I, I wish him the best. And if he doesn't go this year, maybe he'll be in elk shape to go the following year, or maybe even hire an outfitter to take him in there and, and introduce him to elk hunting in, in, a, in a nice way. Maybe even get him into some elk. Maybe he can see an elk or hear an elk bugle in his face like it does me. Oh, I can tell, man. You're a hard worker, and I tell people that's what I'm selling. I'm selling hard work. You're signing up to be an elk hiker. And you, remember, you remember Tread Barda? Yeah. Do the work? Do the work. I've come out of the elk woods at the end of the 30-day season without an elk, but I did the work. And I felt so gratified that at least I met the challenge, and I had didn't have any killing success but i had some great success but i'm a type of guy of this my goal is to actually kill an animal i'm not there to enjoy mother nature to see the butterflies flying around i want to kill an elk and that's my goal and at the end of the year if i've done all the work i can do if i feel tired if i feel the sensation that i've gotten from elk hunting that primo that comes out in mankind because we used to be hunters and gatherers and and that's what we had to do for a living uh, that's all been satisfied. I, uh, I feel good about the season. And then I start planning the next season right now. It's year to year at 82 years old. I'm going to go elk hunting this year again, like I did last year. I did. I went through my regimentation of eating, right. Losing a few pounds, going to the gym and working out. I didn't have any medical issues. And I said to myself, I'm going to go elk hunting this year and I'm going to go elk hunting this year. Again, I'll do the same thing next year. Actually, I just got back from Nebraska. I was over there turkey hunting and hiking around chasing turkeys with a bow and killed two already. And I got another tag I can fill. So I might go next week. And, but uh, been fortunate to be retired for 20 some years, been fortunate to be physically and mentally. Let's not forget that you got to be physically and and mentally prepared. And I'm going to, I'm going to leave you with a little saying you only go around once in life and you got to grab up all the gusto you can while you can, because the life you're living today is not a dress rehearsal for your next. It's not a dress rehearsal for your next. This is the real deal. And you got to take advantage of everything you can and make it happen. The other thing is, since I ran a couple of marathons and I don't know if you have done some long distance running or something, but you know that it formulates something in you that you have to do a lot of work and yeah, you have to feel a little agony and pain sometimes, but life is like a marathon and to be successful and finish or finish strong, all it takes is putting one foot in front of the other. And if you're not putting one foot in front of the other, you're not going anywhere in life. And so those are two of my banners that I think about in this age of my life of just keep moving forward, keeping the gray matter working, keeping engaged with the hunting industry. Actually, tomorrow I'm going to the Capitol. The CBA and other sports organizations are going to show up and support having hunter ed in the schools in Colorado, those who want them, not in the high school, but in the junior high. They're going to make that available for people to be able to take hunter education in the school system if they want to it doesn't involve the shooting aspect of it they can do that later we're going to go support them and meet up with the governor meet up with all the legislators and uh, 
and support that. And then between 11 and two, there's a big get together in a barbecue and a guest speaker, Mahoney, the conservation guy for Pope, he's going to be the guest speaker there. And there's going to be a variety of people. So we're going to show up and we're going to shake hands with the, uh, egg, the legislators people. But you, you brought up something. You asked me about CBA and let me key on it on about four or five issues that we've got involved in recently. One was last year, you should have, if you haven't, uh, Danny Ferris. Oh, yeah. Ultimate predator decoy. So a wildlife commissioner brought up the task that he thought that these bow attached decoys were uh, not only unethical, but dangerous to the hunter. Okay. And so I have used those for years and other people have too. And so we helped support Danny because he owns that company now. And we wrote and testified before the commission, the CBA liaison, three other guys went and testified and they dropped the issue. Okay. Because we came there and collaborated, collaboratively showed them in real facts, why this was an issue looking for a problem. So that was one thing we got involved in. The other thing was the Hunter Orange. And, and we yeah. were able to go and it's been tabled. So it hasn't been eliminated totally. It could come back during the five-year season structure, or it could come back if this year, some non-resident, and unfortunately that both of these were non-resident muzzleloaders shot bow hunter in Colorado over the last five years. It happened, it happened four years ago. We had that postponed for at least three years, but the CBA was there and testified in a wonderful way to convince all the commissioners that let's just table this and get more information. The other thing we got involved in was the mountain lion and bobcat issue that came up recently, that there were four senators from, from the Boulder area that wanted to eliminate mountain lion hunting and bobcat trapping and hunting. And we overwhelmed them with e emails saying, let the science and let the division of wildlife set the rules on these animals. There are plenty of them in Colorado to have seasons for three of the supporters dropped away from the bill. And the only one that was left was the person on the egg committee who supported the bill, but the other egg committee people dropped the bill. So it's been gone. Now it's not that it won't come back is, but it may not. And so there's a variety of things we get involved in and just going to the Capitol and meeting with a bunch of people. And that's awesome that you're involved and that you're going to the Capitol. I love the life advice at the end. That was huge. I got to go here in a second. So I do want it. I, I have to ask you, this is the time to shine any unsolicited marital advice for those that are bow hunters. I feel like that's where we're going to end today. Okay. So my darling wife of 40 years, I was married prior to that. My kids are in their, in their early fifties. Okay. I love Trisha because I met her in North Carolina and, and we had a couple of dates and I saw her on the beach and she, she had a, a wrench in her back pocket. When I first met her, she was a techie for a, a modern dance company. And then down on the beach, she out, casted me on with a surf casting rod. And I went, this is a girl. And so 40 years ago, later, here we are in Fort Collins. And she's been uh, my sidekick and my true love. I love it when she opens up the freezer and say, Paul, we don't have any elk meat. Don't come home until you get one. <laughs> so she is so busy. Now we've never had any children together. Okay. But she's got a lot of nephews and nieces. And she's involved with the church. She's involved uh, as uh, she was a production manager for a local theater for many years. She's very, very well known. And even though she's retired, she gets requests to come and do a production managing for other places. She's a bell ringer at the church. So she has a lot of things going on in her life. And I have a lot of things going on in my life. And we keep 
both busy. And I think that's the main thing. If I go down to Arizona and hunt cows deer for 30 days, so be it. Cause she's busy 30 days somewhere else. If I go into the woods for elk hunting for 30 days, that's fine too. She knows where I'm at. I take a spot messenger with me and say, I'm okay. We rely on each other for a loving couple and, but we support each other. And then we both keep busy in our own lives, but then share our lives together. I've, I've learned a lot about theater from her and I enjoy going to a great presentation. I'm always amazed that people can remember the lines that they have to, I mean, it's just amazing to me. And then she's learned about a lot of outdoors with me actually. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's been uh, the creation of a loving relationship, but with respect for each other. Guys, if you weren't listening, pay attention. It's what we preach. Find your spouse's version of elk hunting and get interested in their passions as well. All too often we as elk hunters, we we're so obsessed and we don't even recognize I'll talk from a man's point of view. My wife's is not theater, Paul. My wife's into home and garden, sprucing up every little project. She's always got something going on, DIY. For many years, I was just like, roll my eyes. How much is this going to cost? And I've come to just appreciate that that's her passion. I get very interested in what she's doing. And you know what? She's shown more interest in my stuff as well because of that. That's great advice. Thank you so much for coming on today. I'm going to do one thing. Okay. So you asked about the CBA and I'm going to leave, leave it with one couple of remarks. Yep. So if you're not a CBA member and hunt bow hunt CB or Colorado, shame on you, join the CBA. You can do that by going to uh, coloradobowhunting.org, coloradobowhunting.org. And I could, and our, here's our whole mission statement right here, but I'm not going to read it. You can go online we have magazine right here that should be on the newsstands and someday it will. It is so highly, I'll tell you, the, the Matt, who is our editor and his cohorts that he got involved with this magazine, it's, it's, it's state-of-the-art magazine, glossy photos, beautiful outlay or layouts and everything. And then our website, we developed a whole brand new website, coloradobowhunting.org tells about all the issues that we're facing and, and how people can get involved. That's a pitch for the CBA. I'm a life member. Awesome. Paul Navar, Colorado Bowhunter Association. Thanks for coming on today. God bless you. I'll leave a link in the show notes for listeners if they want to check out that. You owe it. Don't have any shame. Join. Tribute. Appreciate your support, guys. Separation is in the preparation. We'll catch you on the next one. Hope you guys enjoyed that podcast. That, that was fun, man. Great to meet Paul kind of virtually. I hope to meet him in person, and I can't wait to see his success this fall. I know that he already put down a couple of turkeys after the podcast. I think he's maybe even doing a little black bear hunting. Paul, thanks for your time. Really appreciate it, and I enjoyed every second of our episode. And again, I'm serious, guys. That's who I want to be when I grow up is someone like that. I want to elk hunt until I'm not alive anymore. Podcast brought to you by BlackOpus.com. Discount code Oakshape takes 10% off. Throw some sheep feet in your boots. You can thank me later. Discount code Oakshape 10% off. Check out TheElkCollective.com, your virtual digital elk hunting education resource. Discount code, all one word, Oakshape Podcast. Takes 20 bucks off. We're drinking some Black Rifle coffee right now. We're getting ready to head out on the Baku e-bikes and do a little bear hunting this afternoon. And hopefully you guys are somewhere getting ready for elk season. It's rounding the corner. Get your gear. Get your stuff doped. Get your fitness dialed. We'll see you in September.